Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight we find out why a well-known French scientist is getting a lot of heat for a social media post of a piece of sausage. Context, it turns out, is everything. Eric Alper helped us look back at the career of Olivia Newton-John, who passed away today at the age of 73. We speak to one of the scientists involved in determining the origins of COVID-19. But first, we talk to Carol Todd about victory in her long fight for justice for her daughter, Amanda. Took her own life in 2012 after years of online harassment. On Saturday, Dutch national Aiden Coban was convicted in a BC court of extortion, child luring, criminal harassment, and two counts of child pornography against Amanda Todd. Well, first up tonight, it has been a whirlwind few days for Carol Todd, needless to say, following the guilty verdict delivered uh, by a BC jury over the weekend, bringing an end to a complex nine week trial. And Carol's years-long fight and wait for justice for her daughter, Amanda, a fight that began when 15-year-old Amanda took her own life in 2012 after years of online harassment and after posting a video on YouTube saying she'd been blackmailed by an online predator. Well, the man who harassed her has now been convicted of multiple crimes. Dutch national Aidan Coban was convicted of extortion, child luring criminal harassment and two counts of child pornography against Amanda Todd on Saturday. Here's Carol's reaction on Saturday after a jury confirmed the verdict was indeed unanimous. I am elated that the jury was able to make a decision and so quickly um, and and pronouncing the guilt of Aidan Caban on all five counts. Justice Martha Devlin says the Crown and the defence are scheduled to meet August 12th to set a date for sentencing. Well, joining me now is Carol Todd, Amanda's mom and founder of the Amanda Todd Legacy. Carol, thank you so much. I know you've been doing a lot of talking the past few days, so I appreciate taking some time to talk to me. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, a lot of talking. You know, I always remember one clip of you before I ever met you that really stood out to me. And it was someone asked you once about what you would give to know who had done this and you, you you said it was your dying wish to find out um yep. what was it like on saturday to sit in that courtroom and think well now i know i remember seeing that clip because it was on um the fifth estate that's right the documentary right um mm-hmm. and here we are in 2022 10 years almost 10 years after the date of amanda's death um it was surreal i you know what i'm and i'm still kind of um thinking about it deeply and what keeps replaying in my head because we're all drawn to visuals is in the courtroom um having the court clerk say to the foreperson um reading the charge and hearing the foreperson say guilty count one and then count two count three count four count five and it was, I hate, it was like winning a huge lottery um, because I, I had no idea what that verdict was going to be because there's five different counts, right? Um, yeah. I sat in that jury. It, I sat in that courtroom for nine weeks every day. I heard the same things as the jurors did. Complex, lots of information, um, lots of Witnesses, lots of testimony, a lot of thoughts of evidence, binders and binders of evidence. I had my I had my fears in the nine weeks of um, not hearing guilty. 
Yeah, tell me about that because sitting, you knew better than anybody. I mean, a lot of us didn't get a chance to sit through the entire trial, but you knew how complicated or how complex this all was, how complex these cases always are. Um, what yep. gave you hope that it would work? I mean, or where did you start to have some doubts that it might not? It wasn't, the doubt wasn't because of the evidence presented. There was lots of evidence, Dutch witnesses, forensic experts, um, people, an expert from Australia, experts like there was about six or seven Dutch people, Dutch detectives and forensic experts flown over. We had our own Canadian experts. Um, there was just so much information, right? Um, learning about technology, learning about how Wi-Fi routers worked, um, emojis, software, and, and then it got into uh, Mr. Coban, the evidence there, where he lived, what they found, what they saw, what they what they looked at. And as you sat there day after day, it was like more and more filled your brain, right? Um, and then defense also had the chance to cross-examine. Where it started to make sense, when Crown did their closing arguments and brought it all together. In, they had, uh, I think they were closing for three or four days and they did a PowerPoint with graphics and it was color coded and you could see the lines and it matched up. And it was like that epiphany where it was like, yes, this is understandable because jurors are average common everyday people like you and I, we're not forensic experts. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, this is, this is it. This is the moment where it, it's becoming like the light bulb all of a sudden turned on for me. So if it turned on for me, it would turn on for the jurors, I hoped. And so when you walked in, uh, when you'd heard they'd come back quickly, uh, <laughs> generally yeah. that means they've come to a decision quickly, which can be good and bad, right? We've been there before. But in this case, it felt like it was probably going to be a guilty verdict if they came back that fast, I, th- I thought. And I'm no legal expert, but you know, just having, covered a lot, having covered a lot of court over the years. Well, it was almost like if you blinked, you would have missed it, right? I, I talked to mm-hmm. a few reporters who got the email and then tried to rush to the courthouse and um, either didn't make it or made it just barely. So um, on Saturday morning at 9.30, we heard that there was a question from the jurors. Um, they they brought the question into um, the courtroom and counsel, legal counsel and, and the justice talked about it. Um, answered the question that was presented, brought the jury back in, um, told the jury like what how to how to look at the question again. And this was count five. This was the criminal harassment count. Um, the jury left to further deliberate, and we all thought that okay, they're just going to talk all day and deliberate, and maybe Sunday there would be a, a a verdict. So we all went outside for some fresh air. Um, and within a few minutes, one of the sheriffs motioned to me that I needed to come inside because everyone was reassembling and there was a verdict. And wow. I was like, wow. And uh, what, a, what a journey. Button. What a journey, Carol. What a journey. Deep breaths, right? And yep. I remember, I, I'll, I'll always remember that day. And hearing the first guilty and going, yes. Right. 
Um, and, and then hearing the second ones, because the two child pornography charges were the ones that were based on either um, there was direct or circumstantial evidence. And the evidence had shown that um, Aiden Caban didn't have images or video of Amanda in his hard drives. But, I mean, it was it was a couple of years since her death, so he could have deleted it. And, and the forensic experts found fragments of of whatever, right? But mm-hmm. that would be, have been circumstantial. So I am so happy for the jurors. I don't know what their names are. I mean, I've looked at them for nine weeks, right? Yeah. But I would like to put a big thank you out to them. And I haven't done that on any of my media yet. But yeah. just, a, just a big thank you for processing the information, giving up nine weeks of your life to sit on that jury in the trial of my daughter. I'm sure they knew who you were, Carol. I know you were there every day, so I'm sure they, they you were a familiar oh, face yeah. to them. I'm yeah. speaking with Carol Todd, Amanda's mom. Over the weekend, a guilty verdict on five counts for Aiden Coban, who is uh, accused of extortion or convicted now of extortion, harassment, communication with a young person to commit a sexual offense and position, possession and the distribution of child pornography. Uh, this verdict comes 10 years nearly since Amanda took her life at the age of 15. And we're talking about uh, with her mom tonight just about the verdict, what it means. And when we come back, we'll talk a bit about what's next, uh, because since then, uh, Carol's obviously devoted a lot of her time to trying to make sure this doesn't happen to other children. And of course, we know, and we've been talking about this recently on the show, that we've seen new numbers that this, in fact, is continuing to be a big problem for youth right across the country. We'll get to that after this. Our guest this half hour is Carol Todd, mother of Amanda Todd and founder of the Amanda Todd Legacy. We're talking about a guilty verdict this weekend from a jury here in BC, a conviction for uh, Eamon Coban, who was uh, found guilty of five charges related uh, to the harassment, the online harassment of Amanda back in uh, more than a decade ago now. Uh, Carol, what must your thoughts have been about Amanda when all this happened? You know, we've been fighting this fight. I still see those pictures of her frozen in time. Yeah. Um, listening to her sing, you know, it's it's um, that part of it's still so sad, to be honest. Yes, and you know what, I get I get messages all the time, and and, and we, I repost things, right? Because I yeah. just want her memory. It's my way of of remembering her, and I need to as her mom. Um, I miss her dearly, but um, this this verdict, this trial was for her. Her voice. Right. She she told her story um, in her black and white video. And um, to honor her, we did the fight and we won. It's a good way of putting it, because if she hadn't had if she hadn't had the courage to make that video, you know, we might not be here. I have said that many times. Right. Um, She she wouldn't have put her story out there. Um, It wouldn't have. I guess gotten gone global around the world. Other other kids, other families, other in schools, they wouldn't have, have heard her story, um, or had that conversation started. Because mm-hmm. I understand in in many countries and different in different cities across the world, um, her video was shown and it started that conversation on bullying, cyberbullying, helping others, being respectful, um, what to do online, safety online. So it was really, it was really her. And I'll say that, right. I believe it, that, that started this whole motion. And it feels like Carol, that, that what she was warning about 
is no less relevant today than it was 10 years ago. Oh, I know, because, I mean, what happened to her online with Aidan Caban started back in um, early 2010, maybe late 2009, um, when I was looking, when I was in the courtroom and, and watching the evidence, right? The platforms that kids used back then, it was Skype, Facebook, and um, YouTube. YouTube messaging, mm-hmm. YouTube had had some email stuff going on. And then you look at 2022, kids aren't using those platforms at all. Or, I mean, YouTube's used for just watching videos now, right? Um, it changed. And now there's different things like Snapchat and Instagram. And I can't even name all the ones that the kids are using these days. Um, and parents often ask me, so what can I do to be better informed, right, on what my kid is using? That's a, that's a big question. <laughs> it is a big question. It's a tough question because parents want to know how to protect their kids because they see someone like Amanda, they think, that could be mine. That could be my kid. Yes. Easily. Yeah. Easily. You know what? Pork equipment. In a heartbeat. In a heartbeat, even after many, many table, kitchen table discussions, Unfortunately, it could still be your kid because these any application with a, a chatting platform um, or a chatting video platform. And I, I'm not a fear monger. I hate putting fear into people's hearts, um, but it's more about prevention and safety, right? Like, like we have medical first aid, we have mental health first aid. We need to have a toolkit, like for our technology first aid, what we have, what we know. Um, It's so easy for a child to... Predators out there are very evil and they're very smart. And I was just talking to someone today about like a, a situation. And that's the best way to present and talk to your kids present stories and say, what would you do if? And then if they fall into a situation, they've had practice in figuring a way out with their, with their adult caregiver, their parents, right? And it's so easy that um, hypothetically something's posted um, and then someone is putting a negative comment on it and it, and, and, say that the bad person knows that this is going to hurt the person who posted. So that conversation started. Yeah, that was a really bad comment. Uh, how are you feeling? And, and then person feels like they're um, someone cares about them. And then the conversation might move somewhere else on another platform. And right. then it starts that trust is built and possibly the grooming starts. Right. So we, we do have to have a conversation about, information, privacy, and who to talk to, who to trust, and all that stuff. I only have about 30 seconds left, but I was going to say that that this conviction, though, I would think Mm -hmm. does at least set a precedent that you must be happy with. It does set a precedent because if you you Google sextortion cases in Canada online, you won't find a whole lot online. And... Aiden Caban was an international predator, and there are literally thousands out there um, preying on children or, or waiting. And so a, a tidbit is, if a predator doesn't get the right answer from a 
child, um, and a child could be up to 18 years old, within the first minute of asking questions, they will move on to someone else. Right? Carol? So, extortion continues to be a problem. Carol Todd, thank you so much for your time once again. Um, You know, happy you heard the verdict you wanted to hear after all these years on Saturday. Yes, and we have to wait for sentencing now. Yeah. Carol, thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. Well, this must have seemed like a clever idea at the time. A French scientist has had to apologize after he posted a photo of a slice of chorizo, Spanish sausage, and claimed it was an image of a distant star taken by the James Webb Telescope. The image itself is remarkably believable, but Etienne Klein, who is a celebrated physicist and director at France's Alternative Energies and Atomic Energy Commission, um, praised the level of detail it provided. A picture of Proxima Centauri, he wrote uh, on Twitter and shared it with his 91,000 followers a, a while back. Well, now he's had to apologize. <laughs> And said that he was trying to make uh, trying to make a point. The CNN's Jeannie Moose, who always does great stuff, this is her take on it. We've all been looking at them in awe, gushing over them. Look at this thing. Isn't ah. it beautiful? Even if we're not quite sure we understand what these gorgeous web telescope images are actually showing, especially this one. The planet Nibru, five billion light years away, or, um, no, a salami slice. It feels great. It smells amazing. Actually, something smells fishy. Turns out a famous French physicist named Etienne Klein posted the image saying it was taken by the Webb Telescope, a photo of Proxima Centauri, the closest star to the sun. Most of his Twitter followers got the joke that it was actually chorizo, pork sausage. Of course, the internet responded by grinding out more sausage images, passing them off as the view from another angle or another planet orbiting the original sausage star. But some didn't appreciate mixing astronomy and gastronomy and just give it a good massage. Engage with your food. The esteemed physicist engaged with his critics, apologizing and calling the photo a form of amusement, but urging people to be cautious about accepting eloquent images at face value. No object belonging to Spanish charcuterie exists anywhere but on Earth, Klein tweeted. Still, if the moon is supposedly made of cheese... It's like no cheese I've ever tasted. Why can't a star be made of sausage? The joke and the meat have this much in common. Sweet, a little spicy. Genimos, CNN, New York. <laughs> there you go. There's the story for you. Of course, Klein uh, said, quote, his intention was to urge caution regarding images that seem to speak for themselves. It is remarkably believable if you go have a look at it. Um Joining me with more on this now, because it is a fascinating subject, is Tim Caulfield. He's Canada Research Chair in Health and Law, Health Law and Policy, a professor in the Faculty of Law and the School of Public Health at the University of Alberta. Tim Caulfield, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on, Ben. So this is quite the quite the story, because uh, I remember seeing the original tweet uh, that turned out to be a piece of sausage. Uh, there must be a lesson in this. I just can't quite figure out what exactly the lesson is, other than watch out what you tweet. 
Well, I, I love this story. I think there's a lot going on here with this simple, simple little prank. Uh, first of all, I, I think that the on the good side of the equation, we, ha- we should recognize that this is a scientist that is out there, that he's engaging the public. He's got a lot of followers. Uh, and I love that. I love that. So th- th- it's good that we're having this kind of public engagement. Uh, and I also I'm also a fan, actually, of using humor and satire and kind of performance art uh, to make a point. And I'm going to come back to that <laughs> on the bad side, on the bad side. And I think this is why he got so much heat. And I can't believe how much heat he got. Uh, in this age of misinformation, you've got to be really carefully about about what you're representing. And, and I think it also highlights how satire and irony can be tough on a platform like Twitter. And I think that that's what caught him out. Right. I think, you know, he thought he was being funny and he and he actually he, he says he was trying to make a point about, you know, being careful about believing stuff that you see, you know, double check. Uh, and so when he posted this image of a sausage as a as a son, I believe it was right. Yes. Uh, um, he he he's sort of inviting us. Look, I was you know, I fooled you. You should try not to get be fooled in the future. But it didn't really work. It backfired. So, you know, I, I actually think it's kind of a complex story. Uh, and I think there's a, a number of sides to it. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I found, A, uh, he has about 92,000 Twitter followers. So that's, the, you know, that's a pretty big audience. Uh, his picture of the chorizo was sort of, he had it out against a black background and just a slice. And he referred to it as Proxima Centauri. But it was very well done. Like it was very clearly something that could easily I would have been fooled. <laughs> Absolutely. So in some senses, he was almost a victim of it being too good. It's yeah, I... I, I think so. You know, uh, so there have been these kinds of pranks before and sometimes done very pointedly. There's, for example, a prank going on right now called Birds Aren't Real. I don't know if you follow that one. So this is an individual that is out there, you know, putting forward an absurd conspiracy theory. But he sticks, you know, straight faced that the idea that birds aren't real, that all birds have been replaced by robots in order to be, you know, uh, so the government can uh, monitor our behavior. That's one example. There's another really uh, famous example. I actually use this one in class all the time uh, called Celebrity Meat. Uh, and it's this idea that that an individual is growing sausages. Again, the sausage theme <laughs> from uh, from Celebrity Meat. Uh, and, and what they do is you're supposed to get a sample of a, a celebrity cell and then use stem cell technology to grow the meat. So it's all kind of scientifically plausible. Uh, and, and, but the, again, it's performance art in order to invite us to consider our relationship to ourselves, etc. So I, I think that these kinds of performance art, you know, satire, irony can really be effective forms of science communication and, and ask us to think. But I we need to balance it against the fact that so much out there now isn't real, that there's so much misinformation. I think we have to be careful about how we use our platform. Yeah, I was thinking, well, when it, because I remember seeing the, the initial one, and then obviously seeing that all blow up in his, in his face, uh, Etienne Klein, who, by the way, is director of France's Alternative Energies and Atomic Energy Commission. Like, this is a, you know, this is a guy who has a prominent position. Uh, was that what might have been the reaction to this pre-COVID? Would it have been different? 
Oh, I, I think that's a great point. And I, and I think it would have been completely different. I think, you know, we've seen this sort of erosion in trust uh, for the scientific community. And and I think we've also seen um, the cynicism kind of seep into how we how we read science now. So uh, I think it would have been very different. I think people would have laughed about it. It's maybe something you would see on an April as an April Fool's joke or something like that. So I, I do think it's different. But th- I think that's also there's an important lesson there, too, right, that these are different times and we have to take science communication very seriously. Seriously, you know, but I, I, I post things that are sat, you know, I, ironic too, and, uh, and try to have fun with it. So, uh, seeing the reaction here, <laughs> I'm going to think, I'm going to think twice. <laughs> I'm well, be more careful. The, the problem with, with social media in general is that even if 90% of people or 95% of your audience thinks it's funny or gets it, or, or, or once you reveal that it had been a trick, they're like, oh, isn't that cute? Or isn't that good? There's always going to be that small portion who doesn't, and that's when you're going to get into trouble. So you're you're broadcasting to a pretty wide audience, and that audience is going to be, um, you know, it's going to be different, and they're going to see things different ways. I think that's what Etienne Klein is finding out. Uh, for sure, and uh, you know, I, I've done things like there's a lot, been a lot of very interesting scientific pranks. Now the one is, you know, uh, publishing papers or trying to publish papers that aren't real. Right. And I've actually done that. You know, I, I, I submitted a paper on homeopathy and, it, and the title was homeopathy is pseudoscience BS. And then the abstract was homeopathy is pseudoscience BS. And the methods was homeopathy is pseudoscience BS. And the conclusion was and it got, you know, it was accepted for publication in one of these bogus journals. And then uh it, the the publishers finally figured it out. They actually read the the text, but is that okay? Is that appropriate? Uh, it's an open question, right? You know, of course, I was trying to make a point about these kinds of poor quality journals that are used to to highlight uh, ba- bad conclusions, uh, but. I, I think we need to be careful. And we have to be very strategic how we use these kinds of creative tools to to make points. Because you made a really interesting point off off the bat, which is it is great to see someone like Etienne Klein engaging, as you do with, I think, 80,000 some odd Twitter followers, but engaging with a broad audience um, and sharing their thoughts and not just on, you know, on sort of papers they've written, but on lots of stuff, including the James Webb Telescope, obviously. Um, but it, it is a, it is great for them to communicate. But as you've pointed out, you do have to be very, very aware of the pitfalls. Uh, I really hope that this scandal doesn't discourage him or or other scientists from 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 getting involved. And the interesting thing is, I bet the scientific community, like people like me and people in the research, are more aware of this scandal than the general public. Well, we're going to make them a little more aware tonight, right? But <laughs> but I bet you know we're the ones hearing this, right? <laughs> so I hope it doesn't scare people away from engaging because you're absolutely right. It's it's so so valuable to engage. It, it, it already is tough, especially in the biomedical space where there's so much hate mail, there's harassment, there's death threats, there's lawsuits. You know, there's a cost you pay when you're, you know, you want to engage the public. So I hope that this kind of scandal doesn't doesn't scare someone away. I, I always joke that, you know, uh, um, you know, you aim for you're never going to be perfect. Social media is fraught. You know, you know that. Right. And so you're never going to be perfect uh, and you're going to make mistakes and you apologize when you do. And you know what? He did apologize. You know, he said this was my intention. I feel bad if people didn't take it that uh, as as a joke. Uh, I'll do better going forward. And And that's what you do. And you move on. 
But it does highlight that uh, one of the things that's unfortunate is that one of the ways to get people's attention is to be clever and be funny, as you were pointing out earlier. Uh, and, and and if you really have to walk right down the middle, which which a lot of people do, um, it can be less engaging, right? You're sort of sacrificing something for something else. And one wonders if that trade-off is worth it. Clearly, in this case, probably. But but overall, the idea of being clever, the idea of, of engaging your audience is what social media is really all about, right? hundred uh, percent agree with that. And, and there's research to back it up. You know, research tells us that I always, I always say creativity wins, right? And, and so you want to, you want to use humor, you want to use stories and narratives, you want to use art, you want to use all of those tools in order to get across your message. And of course, those who have been spreading misinformation have been using those tools for a long time. And I think that the scientific community, the research community, the policy community needs to do more of that. And I think the good news is we are seeing more of that, right? Like this, like this scientist, but you're seeing more and more people on TikTok and on Instagram doing a great job of engaging their audiences. So uh, yeah, don't be discouraged by the sun sausage. Should we call it that? <laughs> the sun sausage, yes. Chorizo gate. Chorizo gate. We were going to to coin a boring, a boring phrase for every scandal that's ever been. Uh, but uh, what do you think the lesson is here then? I mean, for, for, and hopefully you're right. Hopefully it doesn't dissuade other scientists who may not have the same familiarity with, uh, with Twitter that, that this gentleman does. Uh, but hopefully it doesn't put a freeze on people hoping to be creative when it comes to explaining or at least offering, um, opinions and stories about science because it is sorely lacking. I mean, you know, it's always been tough for science communication to break through. And we've seen a lot of it obviously during the past few years, but it'd be, it'd be nice to be able to be in a place where you think someone like this gentleman can make a mistake and still continue to tweet. I think the idea is pick your satire carefully, <laughs> you know, because I think part of it was the timing, like they were talking about the, you know, the web telescope and it was so, such a good news story and it was real science. And I think that was part of it, you know, that he was leveraging this. Finally, we have this purity of science. <laughs> you know, finally, we have this science we can celebrate uh, without any polarization. And I think maybe that was part of it. So, you know, pick your satire carefully, but, but also, please, please continue to engage the public. Yeah, as a last question, Tim, because you're so involved in this, what has been, do you think, the benefit of being able to use tools like social media to talk about things like public health, to talk about things like science? Well, we often hear the negative so much, don't we, Ben? I mean, it's like we hear that so much, the bad stuff associated, associated with social media, the, the the spreading of the misinformation. But it also has been an incredibly effective tool to get uh, to engage the public, um, especially especially if it's done well. There are all these wonderful platforms out there. I'll shout out to mine, hashtag science up first. This is an initiative I helped to start. I'm just an advisor now. It's just a wonderful interdisciplinary team. You, know, you can You can do real good. And you can reach broad audiences. And we shouldn't forget that. Tim Caulfield, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on. Well, you may have heard that Olivia Newton-John, the Grammy-winning star who won countless hearts as everyone's favorite Sandy in the film version of Grease, has died at the age of 73. Newton-John's husband announced on social media that the longtime resident of Australia, known for such hits as physical and you're the one that I want, magic and so forth, died today at her Southern California ranch. 
The singer revealed in September 2018 that she was treating cancer at the base of her spine. It was her third cancer diagnosis. She'd be a longtime advocate uh, for a fight against cancer, including opening uh, a special center in Melbourne where she had grown up. Um, and this was following bouts with breast cancer in the early 90s and in 2017 as well. Of course, for anyone who grew up in the 70s or the early 80s, it's hard not to imagine, it's hard to explain in some ways just how popular Olivia Newton-John was for a bit of a stretch there. Uh, certainly uh, between 73 and 83, she had an incredible run uh, with uh, 14 top 10 singles in the U.S., but really it started with Greece in terms of the, the big fame. Uh, and then through to physical, of course, uh, which spent uh, many, many weeks at number one. Joining me now with more on this is Eric Alper. He's a publicist and music commentator. Eric, thanks so much for your time tonight. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. Under under weird circumstances, you know, I think when when the news hit about Olivia passing away, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't think I felt this kind of sadness for somebody that I've never met of a pop artist, maybe since George Michael. This was... This is really bizarre how a lot of people um, were touched by her, and we shouldn't be surprised. She's certainly one of the biggest pop artists of the last 50 years. Yeah, I mean, she had that run, and, you know, her musical talent, at least her voice. I mean, I I don't want to use the word pure (laughs) too too liberally here, but but it it was pretty pure and distinctive. Yeah, especially because when she got her start as a as a country artist uh, of all things, and you know she was a, a pretty big artist in the 1970s on AM soft rock radio with "Have You Ever Been Mellow" and and uh, and "Please Mr. Please" and, and and a couple of other songs as well. But she won she won awards in the for for the for best female artist at the Country Music Awards, and so um, even before we kind of knew her, or at least a lot of us kind of knew her from Greece and the pop stuff, um, she was already selling millions of records around the world, but to country fans, and which was bizarre coming from somebody who was born in the UK and lived in Australia uh, and landed in America, um, you know, with that success. But obviously, you know, when Greece came along, that was it. It was over. It was pop stardom um, until the day today that she passed away. I mean, that album kept selling and selling and selling and still sells a couple hundred thousand copies to this day, thanks to, you know, kids on TikTok doing their own versions of You're the One That I Want and Hopelessly you're Devoted to You whenever they get dumped or become the dumpy. Yeah, it's amazing how well that movie has survived. I remember seeing it in the theaters. I was explaining earlier, I must have been seven or eight, right? So yeah. I was quite shocked when, when Olivia underwent her metamorphosis halfway, when Sandy changes halfway <laughs> or about three quarters of the way through the movie. I was truly disappointed and had to have it explained to me, like, why would she change her clothes? She looked great before. You know? That's what um, I said. I, I, you know, and I know and I get it, right? You know, the the leather clad smoking Sandy at the end of it. Um, uh, but, you know, I think a lot of people were kind of like what was wrong with the innocent Sandy? What was wrong yeah. with with that at all? And so the fact that that it kind of symbolized what Olivia Newton John was really like, or at least in terms of of her music, because right after that you had songs like Twist of Fate, you had songs like Physical, um, and and other kind of sexually oriented songs that five years before would not 
have even come across her her repertoire, but it seemed like she can go from country to pop to you know a little bit you know nod and winking of of the of the pro sexual eighties and I mean to have a woman sing about physical and and let's get down was so rare in the eighties that it, it almost seems you know pretty quaint but it was a really big deal when that song came out back in 1981 oh, I, re- I remember vividly when that song came out first of all it was banned in some places which if you listen to it yeah. today or even five years later it seemed uh fairly incredible but it was banned in places and it was a monster hit i think it was a number one for 10 weeks or 11 weeks in the u.s yeah the most yeah, and all Debbie over much music and mtv and and uh, uh and she still continues she still continued to record um she still continued to tour around the world and uh you know becoming a, a huge activist for environmental and animal rights causes. And unfortunately, when she was diagnosed with breast cancer, um, you know, she took it upon herself to to travel the world and speak at various conferences and with media um, wherever she could about um, the benefits that, that science was offering her, um, written uh, you know, several books about her triumphs and her tragedies and uh, uh, and was a real spokesperson for kind of you know, getting through this this weird thing called life in one piece. Yeah, that's one of the things. I mean, there's been a lot of movie, a lot of clips, interview clips with her out there today. There's one really good piece that was run in Australia where they obviously had a very uh, close bond to uh, to Olivia Newton John in Australia. And one of them yeah. was just asking her about about her journey, and she said, "You know, I just grew up wanting to sing, and you know, that I've had my ups and my downs. There was obviously some personal tragedies. Um, her boyfriend, I guess, her at the time in the early knots disappeared." Um, on a fishing trip, and there's been some heartbreak, and obviously her 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 uh, her struggles with cancer over time, um, and then it came back, and you know she. But there's something about the way she came across in those interview clips, and I think it's what you're seeing and what you're talking about off the top today in terms of how much outpouring there's been of sympathy for her, or at least of fondness for her. Um, that she seems to have been as nice as you think she was. And, and, which is, and which is rare. I, I totally agree. And it's weird because pop music is, is really designed to kind of fool people a little bit, to offer up dreams and hopes in and, and give you a reality um, away from your normal humdrum life. Um, but she seemed to have... Um, been as real as you can get being a pop star with that. Um, she seemed to kind of live the lifestyles that she was um, when the music kind of hit her, when that muse hit her. And certainly she's gone through not only um, her own tragedy with the breast cancer, but, um, you know, her, her, the daughter of, of one of her best friends passed away from cancer, and she did a lot of advocacy work for that. So she was somebody who, who held the mantle brightly of having, uh, you know, having that ability to speak out on various causes and issues. And I think that that's why we, I I totally agree. That's why I think we all feel very sad and and very touched by, by her life is because I think that, you know, we would all love to have, um, you know, lived a long fulfilling life like she had, but also, you know, being able to to put the spotlight on others and put the spotlight on on good things that are happening uh, in this world despite tragedy. It's the whole thing of carrying on at your lowest ebb. You know, she was absolutely symbolic of that. One of the things I found interesting too about her was that, um, you know, from the very plateau, if we want to call, it, I mean. If we look back now, Greece would have to be the plateau, would have to be the highlight, I would say, of, of, of her popularity and career to some extent. But 
you know, if physical were the were the were the pinnacle uh, with all those weeks at number one, it seemed to dissipate pretty quickly for her after that. First of all, music changed a lot, right? Between the time she made physical and then she made Twist to Fate, she made some um, two of a kind. She made some bad movie decisions yeah. over the years, and and then all of a sudden Madonna came along and Cindy Lauper and Whitney Houston and things had kind of you know everything sort of changed, and I guess the time had passed, but. She never struck me as being someone who looked like she she regretted that all that much, or she wasn't so she certainly wasn't bitter about it. No, um, I, and you know, at the time, I mean, if you were a woman, uh, you might have not regretted any moment spending with somebody like John Travolta over the course of of several movies and several years together. Um, you know, at least on screen. But um, but but I, I I think you're so right when it comes to to the movement of pop music around that time, where um, it seemed like in an instant when MTV first began and slowly set into 1983-84, that was the wave of British artists like Eurythmics and Boy George and Culture Club and Duran Duran and Tears for Fears. And it seemed like Olivia Newton-John songs were were quaint. It seemed like it was just a faraway place of of make-believe when these fashion-conscious people were making better videos, writing better songs within their own group rather than getting a songwriter to do that for them um and uh and things got looking old very quickly um especially when in the 80s or in the mid 80s a movie like Greece wasn't really looked upon as as cool anymore that was our parents you know that was that was a, a, an, an eon in an era ago and it took something like the 90s and the nostalgia period to bring all that music back again yeah, no, I mean, it, when in the 80s, you would you would not, I mean, not always, lots of people still love the Grease soundtrack, but, you know, no one, not the whole room cheered when Summer Love came on yet again. Yeah, you, you would never admit it. But the same thing for Saturday Night Fever. Yes. I mean, you know, there was a period in the 80s where, you know, disco brought new wave music easily into the room. It allowed, um, you know, dancing in four by four beats and, and people who couldn't dance started to dance all over again to disco music. But this was cooler. It, it had a little bit of a punk edge to it. It was more street valued. Um, and so even though Saturday Night Fever never really left those late night television um, spots whenever, whenever they decided to air it on the local channels, um, it, took almost 10, 15 years for the Bee Gees to become cool again. Um, it certainly took, um, you know, a looking back on it, uh, on that period and say, well, you know, it, it wasn't really all that bad. But, um, you know, we have social media sites now with, like TikTok where 12 and 13-year-olds um, and, and even younger are posting videos right now about Olivia Newton-John, and I wouldn't be surprised if you start to see Hopelessly Devoted to You or Physical back on the Billboard Hot 100 like we've seen with Kate Bush or Metallica. Um, yeah. You know, could those songs, those songs still hold up. They're brilliant yeah. songs, especially with Hopelessly Devoted to You, a song that, uh, like, she had in her contract in Greece that she had one solo song to do. That was a must. And about halfway through the, the making of the movie, they still didn't have the song written for her. And um, John Parr, her, her kind of musical director, finally wrote it. The producers begrudgingly 
told her, yeah, if you want the song, you can sing the song. They filmed the song and they recorded the song after Grease came out. And it was a huge movie, like after it was finished. And, and it became, you know, her single, one of the biggest songs of the last 25 years at the time. So um, good songs are good songs. They'll, they'll always find a place in people's hearts. Eric Alpers, our guest this half hour, publicist and music commentator. We're talking about uh, the career, the life of Olivia Newton-John. And we'll continue with that after this. Eric Alpers, our guest this half hour, publicist and music commentator. We're talking about the life and career of Olivia Newton-John. Of course, he passed away at the age of 73 today. One of her many big hits, hopelessly devoted to you. It's funny, Eric, when you look back at that era, how little she's talked about outside of, say, Greece, in terms of what a big star she was, or did she have a great voice, or did she have a lot of great hits? She's not often mentioned in the same breath as any of those other sort of the Linda Ronstads and the so on from the 70s who did so well. Yeah, and and it's a shame because, you know, when she can go and have a career, at least in her first seven or eight years, of an Australian country singer to uh, a pretty bold and vibrant and and brazen 80s black leather new wave diva in in just that short period of time. Um, It's easy to see why she could do it all and how she could do it all. She could do ballads like Hopelessly Devoted to You. She could do country like Let Me Be There. She can do 50s music like Grease. She can do disco show tunes like um, that she did in Xanadu with Gene Kelly, of all people, who must have been like 140 years old at the time of that he did that movie. Um, and, and it's a real shame because I think that she was undervalued and, and underappreciated um, with the different styles of music um, that she can do, especially when we talk about the the blending of somebody like Taylor Swift and the remarkability and the genius um that she has able to do it and make no mistake taylor swift is absolutely one of those legendary artists even at at her young age um the fact that that it seemed like it was almost an impossible achievement that anybody can go from country music to pop in three albums she was kind of doing that legitimately and authentically within a song and uh, and I agree with you. I, I think that it's kind of a little bit underappreciated um, in the same kind of way that maybe Karen Carpenter was a little right. bit underappreciated in the Carpenter, not just for her drumming skills, but just her smooth voice and her just effortless that she can sing, um, that we were just so entranced with watching her. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think Xanadu didn't help. I think some of those, I don't think two of a kind helped. There were some decisions made, I think, in a certain point where, you know, but but when you look back now, of course, she made some of the, the most uh, iconic songs of that era between, you know, 77 and 83. They're, those are so the songs that you, I, I was playing some of them on YouTube. Do you remember them instantly when you hear the first two bars of Magic? You remember Magic or Make a Move on Me or Physical specifically, but all those songs as Anna do, um, you know, even the ones like Cliff Richard and the duets, like I remember all of those because <laughs> they were everywhere. They were everywhere. They were, they were everywhere. And even though that Xanadu was just a box office bomb and, and, it, and it flopped. I remember as a kid not seeing the movie Precisely because Mad Magazine would parry it to no e- to no That's end, true. and if Alfred E. Newman is making fun of something, um, it's usually something that you may not want to to get a hold of. But um, I, I remember reading a quote later, later on um, in in a book that Rolling Stone magazine put together of of 
the the lost kind of John Lennon interviews. And John says that he loved commercial music, especially in 1979 uh, and 1980. It was one of the reasons why he got back in the studio from being a, a so-called house husband and being right. a father um, to Sean Lennon at the, at the time, when I think Sean was about five years old, was he was listening to the B-52s on the radio, that song Rock Lobster. And yeah, he I'm called right. out to Yoko and said, they're finally ready for us. And in the same breath, he's talking about loving the B-52s, and he's praising Olivia Newton-John singing Magic and Donna Summer singing disco music. So if John Lennon is proclaiming your brilliance and not even caring what movie you're in, chances are you're on the right track when it comes to the music if somebody like John Lennon is praising you. Eric Alper, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. Where did SARS-CoV-2 come from? How did it wind up in Wuhan? That is a question that, of course, remains the subject of much study, a lot of speculation, and no end of geopolitics. Finding the answers has been a challenge with investigations hindered by what my, what my next guest described in a recent piece in the Global Mail as incomplete and inaccessible early data widespread speculation, conflicts of interest, and an increasingly toxic political climate that has undermined scientific expertise and methods. But now, an international team of virologists, evolutionary biologists, and statisticians, including my next guest, say they have answers and can confidently say the pandemic began at the Huanan wholesale seafood market in Wuhan, with all evidence pointing resoundingly, they say, at zoonotic spillover. In other words, transmission from live animals sold there. And joining me now is Michael Warraby. He's a Canadian evolutionary biologist and professor and head of the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Arizona. He is among 18 authors of the Huanan Seafood Wholesale Market in Wuhan, was the early epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic article, um, which was co-led by Dr. Warraby and published in the peer-reviewed academic journal Science. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Great to be here. Thanks a lot. So this has been been a real, I mean, a political football as for one, but kind of the Rosetta Stone of, of of medical mysteries. Where did COVID come from? What did you set out to find, and what was your hypothesis going in? Yeah, you know, I have been working on this pretty much since day one of the outbreak, um, and I have kept an open mind to to all possibilities, uh, including, you know, people will have will have heard this idea that it, it came from a lab and there was a lab in in uh, this city, uh, Wuhan, that studied these viruses. Um, and I actually uh, spearheaded a, a letter uh, in Science Magazine about a year ago that was very influential, where 18 of us uh, scientists said, you know, it's too early to say either way. And so let's let's keep an open mind about both. That letter really led to the lab leak idea becoming more mainstream. Uh, it led to President Biden's 90-day intelligence review where he got his uh, spy and law enforcement agencies to, to look into whatever they could find, which was not a heck of a lot. Because at the end of the day, this is a scientific question, um, and 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 it prompted me to try to figure out everything I could with existing evidence um, uh, about 
where this really started. And so people will remember back uh, at the earliest uh, time point uh, when we first learned about this, that a lot of the cases were linked to this uh, Huanan seafood market. Uh, and it's a bit of a misnomer because it didn't just sell seafood. It also sold live mammals like uh, exotic things to us called raccoon dogs that just look like a cross between a raccoon and a dog. But these animals were implicated in the first SARS 20 years ago. Uh, they were infected with with that virus. And we know they're susceptible to SARS-2. And that's the kind of scenario that certainly if you just... Um, zoom out and and think about the most likely scenario for SARS-2 to have uh, emerged. It's a repeat of SARS-1, that th these animals uh, can be a bridge between the ultimate hosts of these SARS-related viruses, which are bats uh, and humans. And they they are potentially the way that the virus gets from the middle of nowhere uh, bat cave in China uh, to a big city like like Wuhan. Um, but I've been very sort of uh, as a scientist um, skeptical of of any theory, and and so really in this study, um, what I wanted to do is. Once I got my hands on data on the residential addresses or, or locations of the first 200 or so people who are known to have COVID in Wuhan. So we have dots on a map all over uh, greater Wuhan. Um, wh what I wanted to do actually is, is try to disprove the theory that they all clustered around this market. Um, and, uh, and so that's what, that's what my colleagues and I set, set out to, to do. So what conclusion, uh, did you re reach? Obviously you're talking about zoonotic spillover, um, uh, to use the, I guess that's the proper term, but, but what sure. conclusion did you reach and how did you get there? Yeah. So, so it was a, it was a two component study. Uh, and, and first when we did look at the location of these early cases, um, we found that far from excluding the idea that there was an association between where the early cases lived and the market, uh, they pointed directly uh, at the market. Uh, the, the, the earliest cases lived extremely near the market. And they also, if you kind of took their central, uh, the, the center point of the cluster, it was basically overlaid directly on the market in, in a way that was remarkable. Um, also, actually, w w one of the most interesting things was, we know, as I said, we know a lot of the earliest people who got infected worked at the market. So what we did was we said, okay, Let's kick those ones out of the analysis. We knew that we know that they were linked to the market. What about the people who you know, were asked, did you work there? Did you visit there? Did you know anyone who did? And they said, no, no, and no. They had no known connection to the market. Well, turns out they lived even closer and more centralized uh, uh, around uh, the market than the, the cases as a whole. And what that told us was, the first people in this city, in this big 8,000 kilom square kilometer city uh, who were infected in the community generally 
were those who were living in the neighborhoods around the market, presumably as people who worked at the market, then went outside into nearby shops, restaurants, uh, and so forth, infected local uh, businesses, and then people who lived in the community interacted with those businesses and it starts slowly spreading from, from there. Um, so that, that was, that was the first part of the study. And it seems like, I mean, when you think about the way that these, uh, viruses spread, that seems like the logical answer. It just got lost apparently in a, in a lot sort of, I gather in a lack of data or, or, you know, just in a lot of different, uh, obstacles that were put in the way, because that seems like the logical way that this would have spread given, as you were mentioning earlier, our experiences with the first SARS virus, which many Canadians will remember. Uh, absolutely. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you have to remember that um, we're we're coming in contact with viruses that um, are infecting animals on a daily basis. You know, hundreds, thousands of people around the world uh, are are contacting even bats in the wild, and and you know, in villages near caves that house bats that um that harbor viruses related to SARS-CoV-2 the the COVID-19 virus uh in some areas 2 to 3% of of the people will have antibodies against those viruses now what does that tell us it tells us that it's happening all the time but that most of the time the the bat virus or the virus uh, that's moving from a bat to another animal and then to a human is not able to actually do its thing in a human. It, it, it might get there and infect a few cells, um, but it's not able to produce a, 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 a productive enough infection that that person then transmits the, the virus onto the next person. And it's obviously a very rare thing you know, it happened with SARS-1 and then it happened 20 years later with SARS-2 where all the stars align to get the rare virus in a bat that actually has a, a receptor that uh, or, or a, uh, a protein on the outside of it that is is the right kind of shape for the receptor on our cell that serves as the, the docking station. Um, most bat viruses can't actually jump into a human. Uh, and then to take that into a big city like like Wuhan. I'm speaking with uh, Dr. Michael Warby. He's an evolutionary biologist and professor and head of the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Arizona. We're talking about uh, new work uh, that he and a team have done uh, to uh, look at the origins of COVID-19, uh, a, a very controversial topic uh, right around the world. Uh, the article that you've written in the Globe and Mail is called uh, COVID-19 almost certainly did not come from a lab leak. Here's how we know. When we come back, we'll talk about how you disproved that theory while at the same time uh, landing on the fact that it probably did indeed emerge from that uh, wet market in Wuhan as had already been, as had been first uh, believed. We'll be back with that. Our guest this half hour is Canadian Dr. Michael Warby. He's an evolutionary biologist and professor and head of the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Arizona. We're talking about research that he's done, he and a team have done, uh, concluding or trying to find the origins of COVID-19, a much talked about, a much debated subject. Uh, we've talked about why the belief is, the conclusion was that it very likely came uh, from 
a wet market in Wuhan. This was a zoonotic spread from animal to human. Uh, you also mentioned, because this has been something you've been talking about quite a bit, uh, the theory of the lab leak. And you went about disproving the theory of the lab leak. And that was a really interesting aspect of your research. How did you go about doing that? What did you find? Yeah, and I wouldn't say we've disproved it. No. You know, pr- proving and disproving is really for for mathematicians and, right. and no uh, absolutes. <laughs> My apologies. Yeah, yeah. We, we but but the 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 overwhelming uh, uh, the, the evidence is overwhelmingly in favor of uh, a natural origin of this through wild the wildlife trade connected to this particular market um and just briefly before i go into the details of what was going on inside the market uh i just want to add that there 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 were two early distinct lineages of this virus in wuhan in 2019 uh and one of the things that came out of our geographical analysis was uh, one of them had already been shown to be linked to the market. And the thinking was that that was the only one that was linked to the market. We showed that the other one was linked as well. Uh, and that really, again, showed that the epicenter of the market, uh, uh, the epicenter of the pandemic was this market. And so then the question is, OK, how did both of these lineages, how did how did this become the epicenter? How did the virus get there? Uh and and for that we looked within the market and and it turned out that uh the market was shut down you know within days of public health authorities learning about the connection between early covid cases and the Huanan market um unfortunately the live animals that we show in our paper had been for sale there one way or the other, they had disappeared and were were not sampled. Uh, uh, so we don't have the luxury of live uh, samples from those live animals to say, okay, we've caught, we've got the smoking gun. We've got a a fox that was sold in stall number ten that that has uh, the progenitor virus. But what authorities did do was swab surfaces from dozens and dozens of these stalls that were selling different things from seafood to vegetables to, in several cases, live mammals. Uh, Things like doorknobs, floors, walls, but in other cases, very animal-associated surfaces like cages, uh, carts used to move cages, feather removers. Um, and what we showed in, in our paper was that you could actually predict the highest concentration uh, of sites within the market uh, that had positive environmental swab samples for SARS-CoV-2 uh, with two things. Uh, you tell me if a stall was positive for a human case, uh, and I'll tell you, okay, it's more likely that you're going to find, you know, a doorknob or a floor sample that's positive. But if you tell me a stall was selling live wildlife, uh, equally, I can tell you with statistically uh, high confidence it's more likely that you're going to find a surface there, uh, and in particular, a cage or a, 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 a cart for moving a cage 
that is positive uh, for the the virus. Um, and it was, in fact, the the southwest corner of the western section of the market that w- the, that sort of lights up as the strongest concentration of these so-called environmental positive uh, samples. Uh, and that's just the same area that was the 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 corner of the market that sold uh, the 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 bulk of the live wildlife, and to to take things one step further, and this was like just kind of mind blowing. Uh, in 2014, one of our co-authors, a guy named Eddie Holmes, who's a professor in Sydney now, an English guy, he had been taken to that market when he was visiting collaborate collaborators in Wuhan. Uh, as an example of a place, not, not, not definitely not. Okay, here's the here's the market where the next pandemic's going to start. But he was taken there by public health uh, colleagues, uh, and and shown the, the the market as the sort of interface between animals like raccoon dogs and humans that could uh, bring and uh, viruses from animals in, into humans. And he snapped photos uh, in, in a particular stall uh, of raccoon dogs in a cage. Well, that's the stall actually that we've uh, found using data collected by Chinese colleagues had the highest number of SARS-CoV-2 positive uh, samples. So we can't say for sure that that stall is where this started. Uh, but it's pretty uh, remarkable. Um, and when you put it all together, all of the evidence makes sense in in uh, uh, in light of a origin of this pandemic at this market from wildlife being sold there. Um, and literally none of it makes sense uh, with any other hypothesis that's put been put forward uh including the idea that it came from a lab dr michael warby thank you so much for your time tonight i appreciate it thank you very much 